Hi everyone. I hope you had a great weekend. I am coming to you today fresh off of a great birthday weekend. I just turned 35 and I'm ready to introduce you to Gary Ginsburg, who is the author of First Friends, the powerful, unsung, and unelected people who shaped our presidents. Now, every once in a while, a book will come around where I'll read it and say, man, I wish I had thought of that idea to write about. This book is certainly an example of that. Gary takes a deep dive into the best friends of U.S. presidents, some you've heard of, some you haven't, and some that might surprise you. As I'm sure you know from your own life, the power of friendship is immense. In these nine friendships, Gary Profiles will show you a new side to even the presidents we think we know best. Take a listen. I am so glad to be here with you today. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be a, be a part of this. So I just told you this offline, but I'm going to say it on the show too. This is one of those books that I read and said, wow, I wish I had written that. So how did you come up with the great idea for this book to write about the closest friends of a few of our U.S. presidents? Well, I guess... Um... I've just been endlessly fascinated by the American presidency since I was in the third grade and I watched the sixth grade class actually perform uh, a, a play about the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Now, why the teachers thought that that should be a good introduction for <laughs> third graders into the American presidency is a curious choice, but I just came back, came back from that play just transfixed by Lincoln and then by extension, the presidency itself. And then um, as I got older, I started getting involved in campaigns and in politics. And in 1984, I saw for the first time the role of the first friend. It was in the body of Warren Beatty, this famous Hollywood actor, who would fly in for important campaign events and speak to heart in a way that nobody else did. He would say, stop acting and talking like a politician. And Hart would listen in a really like, you know, in an almost shocked way that someone would talk to him like that, but it was, it really resonated with him. And then they would go off and they'd have these late night dinners and Beatty would give him, you know, respite and relaxation and laughter in a way that nobody else on the staff could. And I kind of took note of that. And then uh, eight years later, I worked on Bill Clinton's campaign and I saw that same dynamic at play, both with his myriad first friends. This is a guy who had an enormous capacity for friendship. Yeah. And um, he's the only president in history who can say my, my best friend saved me from losing a campaign and ele ultimately electing me. But I saw it particularly in the role of Vernon Jordan and how he related to the candidate first and then the president, that he had this stature and this star power, not that dissimilar to Beatty's, that allowed him to act differently with Clinton than anybody else around him and to speak the blunt truth and to give him the kind of respite and laughter that nobody else could. And so I guess, you know, I, I, I took it all in. And then in 2018, I saw the exact opposite with a president who didn't have any first friends mm -hmm. and what impact that that had 
And so I looked at literature and said, well, what, what's out there? And there was nothing on the first friend. I mean, I was surprised by that. There are books on every facet of the president's orbit, the first butler, the first chef, the first decorator, but no one had thought to look at what role first friendship has played. And so I started looking around, found some great stories and said, let's write a book. No, it's so good. And Bill Clinton and Vernon Jordan, of course, make the the book. You choose nine best friend pairs. What made you choose these particular nine pairs? Well, as you, you know, point out, I, I knew I wanted to write about Clinton. And um, I was able to actually ask Clinton who his first friend was. And luckily, he said Vernon, because I had already gone and interviewed Vernon. As soon as I got the idea, he was the first phone call I made other than to my agent or my friend who became my agent just said, you think there's a book here? And she said, yes. So I called Vernon and I sat down with him. He gave me a great interview. And then I called Clinton and said, I'm writing this book. Would you participate? And he said, yeah. And I said, who's your first friend? And it was, it was Vernon. So that worked out well. With Kennedy, I actually asked his daughter, Caroline, who's a longtime friend of mine. And mm -hmm. she gave me the really interesting choice of Ormsby Gore, which I think is one of the more interesting chapters in the book, just because it's such yeah. a surprise. It was a surprise to me. Um, and I think it's a surprise to most readers. Um, I was surprised too because Kennedy had a lot of friends as well. And I, you know, that if you, if you read Kennedy, which I know you do, and I, I do too, it, you know, I, I'd heard of David Ormsby Gore, but I, I didn't think that he was the first friend, you know? I didn't either. I didn't either. In fact, I, I went to Caroline with the idea, well, I'm going to do Lem Billings. And that's, that's the name yeah, that's Billings, typically yeah. associated. Mm -hmm. But she said, now there's a more interesting name that no one's really focused on. And I'm going to, I'm going to tell you and call me back in 48 hours and tell me if I'm not if I haven't steered you down the right track. And she was absolutely right because he was not only a great companion and first friend to Kennedy, but he was also a, an intellectual soulmate who had a really profound influence on the course of Kennedy's presidency, particularly in the last year, both in the Cuban Missile Crisis and then in the signing of the Limited Nuclear Test Ban Treaty. Lem Billings could give Jack Kennedy enormous laughter and fun and respite, but I think Ormsby Gore filled that in with that intellectual side that just made him a really compelling figure to me and hopefully to the readers. Yeah, so I, let's let's stay on Ormsby Gore for a second. So he, Ormsby Gore, actually proposed to Jackie Kennedy after um, her husband JFK's death. She turned him down and went on, of course, to marry Aristotle Onassis in 1968. Do you think, this This might be an impossible question to answer, but do you think Ormsby Gore really loved Jackie or he just wanted to stay close to a part of Jack? I, I really don't know the answer to the question. That's a very fair question. Mm -hmm. um, all we know about that is from the correspondence that was uncovered in 2017 when a box of their correspondence was found by the Harlech family and then auctioned and the letters came to light. And all we know is that he did propose and that Jackie um, wrote a really beautiful letter in response beautiful to letter, finding his yeah. proposal by basically saying, we share too much hurt and pain together. And if we're ever gonna find happiness, we have to do it alone. And I think that Ormsby Gore, as painful a rejection as that was, understood that himself. And the next year, Jackie went on to marry Onassis, as you point out, and then he found love for the last really uh, 17 years of his life with a, an American who was a Vogue fashion editor over in London. Yeah, I mean, fascinating character, one that I really didn't know a whole lot about until I read this book. And would you say that, um, I mean, they're all, they're all compelling and we're gonna dive a little bit into a couple of them in a second, but which would you say to you if you, if you were 
forced to choose is the most compelling first friend pair that to read yeah, well, write about. It's a little bit like asking a parent, you know, who's your favorite child? After you <laughs> I know that's not three fair. years, that's not fair. three years, kind of, you know, dealing with each one for many, many months at a time. I think um, that Lawrence B. Gore was particularly compelling for the reasons we just described, because it was such a surprise. And to learn, uh, to see this relationship evolve from two 20-year-olds cavorting in London to the Oval Office in the Long Gallery in the second floor and deciding, you know, questions of, you know, the fate of the earth between them and watching that trajectory and then being able to write about it and bring it to life was a particular joy for me. But, you know, I, I think almost all of them I found just so thoroughly compelling because they were all new explorations for me. I mean, you think you know Jefferson and Madison, but you certainly didn't know about their friendship and how consequential that was, or the strangeness of the relationship between Nixon and Rebozo, how they could sit yeah. inside and how it could all go so wrong because the best friend can't speak up to the leader when the moment arises and he can keep him from his, you know, his darkest impulses. So every, you know, Daisy Sukley, no one knows who Daisy Sukley that is. That was right? the one for me. That was the one for me. Let's talk. Let's talk about them for a second. So Daisy Sukley is the first friend of and the only opposite sex friendship you cover in the book, by the way, with FDR, and that's his cousin, right? And so right. Tell, tell us about this friendship, which uh, helped really make FDR one of our nation's greatest leaders. Yes. Well, what I found so striking about FDR, and I should have. I should have known it because his son wrote uh, a memoir of his father that was subtitled A Lonely Man. But it really came home to me in the relationship between um, FDR and Daisy Sukley. He was fighting a world war. He's fighting a depression. Yet he was the loneliest president, perhaps, of the 20th century, partly because his kids were away and his wife was away. So mm -hmm. he had no home life. And he says to Daisy Sukley, I'm either exhibit A or left entirely alone. Wow. Daisy Sukley was the antidote to that loneliness. She was his, quote, constant companion is the title of Jeffrey Ward's anthology or, 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 or um, chronology of their, their correspondence in her diary. He was the first one to kind of put it all together when their correspondence was discovered in 1991 when Daisy Sukley died. No one knew that Daisy Sukley played this essential role in the emotional life of FDR because she never told anybody about it until she died in 1991. And then what we see from the letters, what we see from the diary is an incredible bonding of two individuals, not on a level, on an intellectual level, like we just discussed with Lawrence B. Gore. She didn't make any hard decisions. She didn't, you know, bang on the table and get him to do something he didn't want to do. She did something totally different, but equally important as a first friend, which was to give him emotional respite. Mm. One day he had 22 meetings 1944, he's fighting the war. At the end of that day, I don't know about you, Rachel, but I just want to crawl into a hole. He yeah. wanted to have dinner with Daisy Sukley because she made him laugh. She was curious. She was a very attentive listener. She cared about him as a, not just as a leader, but as a man. They may or may not have had some kind of kiss on a hill in 1935, but it quickly developed into an intense a platonic relationship that I think he valued as much, if not more than any other relationship in his life. And she was there for him constantly throughout those last five years of his life and gave him that sense of recharge and um, an emotional ballast 
to allow him to fulfill the functions of his office. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's just, a, it's so compelling. And um, another compel, I mean, they're all compelling. It, that, I, that is an impossible question that I asked you to choose your favorite because I can't, I don't even think I can choose mine, but, and I didn't even write this book, but I want to zoom in for a minute on Franklin Pierce, who is a president many of us have never heard of, and his first friend, who is a man almost all of us have heard of Nathaniel yes. Hawthorne, who is a writer yes. that you write is uh, quote, the only first friend better known today than the man he befriended. And yeah, I mean, everybody knows who Nathaniel Hawthorne has probably read his works in high school. Uh, very yep. few people, if, if, if asked to name all of the presidents, I would put Franklin Pierce, maybe like if you could name him, he would certainly not be in your top 20 that you could name. So, right. tell, and they were extraordinarily close. So tell us how they formed as you write, quote, a two-man club against the world. Sure. Um, well, just to punctuate your earlier point, only 7% of Americans in a recent C-SPAN poll could identify Franklin Pierce as a president. Yeah. I think that's the lowest number of any president. And he immediately you. precedes Lincoln, right? So he no, no, there's two. The, the reason why James Buchanan pre uh -huh. is, is is better known than Pierce is he's considered the single worst president in history. <laughs> Franklin Pierce is generally considered the third worst. Yeah, so, I mean, he, very few people know him. Only I only know him because I I like you love the American presidency and have studied it endlessly. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, this is I was like Nathaniel Hopper, he's he's much more well known. So you know, how did is. they how did tell me so, a little bit about their two-man club? Yes, I like to say that Hawthorne is only known because you know generations of school children were subjected to the scarlet <laughs> letter. <laughs> right, right. I mean, we're right. all supposed to like it, but you know, it's sometimes it can be a real slog, but I um, like the Scarlet Letter. I don't. I can't believe I read it when I was like fifteen or sixteen. Right, we we're a little sure too young that, to have read it. Yeah, exactly. So they met um, on a stagecoach. They're both going to Bowdoin College. Pierce is going back for a sophomore year. Hawthorne starting his freshman year. They're totally different personalities. Uh, Pierce is a son of a Revolutionary War hero. He's a handsome guy. He's a great talker. He's very athletic. He's garrulous. He's the life of the party. Hawthorne is the exact opposite. He's inwardly focused. He's shy. He is melancholy, but they just bond and they become best friends in college. They maintain that friendship for the next 30 years. Hawthorne, shockingly, despite his literary success, can't make a dollar. And throughout his 20s, 30s, and 40s, Pierce constantly saves him from poverty, literally poverty, by getting him government jobs as Pierce rises from um, the state legislature to the US Senate and then to a very successful trial lawyer in New Hampshire. He is, um, he's a very dark horse candidate in, 19, in 1852 and he's nominated on the 49th ballot. Now the way you sell presidencies back in the 19th century was not through slick TV ads like we know today, but through, an, through a biography. And so there was always a big competition to get the most celebrated writer to write your biography because it would be excerpted in papers around the country. And that's how people made their decision. So who does Pierce turn to but Hawthorne? And Hawthorne writes the autobiography of Franklin Pierce. Many people consider it another work of fiction because it so glorified Franklin Pierce, who was a particularly flawed figure even before he began his presidency. His presidency is an abject disaster. Um, he, it is the powder keg by which the Civil War actually is lit and 
descends into chaos because he was weak. He was stricken by tragedy. He had three sons die in quick succession, the last of which died um, two months before he was sworn in. His wife sits upstairs on the second floor of the White House, writing letters to her dead son and throwing them in the fireplace, never comes down. Pierce, um, as I say, can't manage his own government. He takes very unpopular pro-slavery pro positions as a northerner. And Hawthorne is with him every step of the way. Hawthorne gets rewarded with another job. He goes to Liverpool, uh, England, gets a cushy job, continues to stay best friends with Pierce. They're now two men against the world because they're both northerners who support the institution of slavery as a way to maintain the union. Um, it ends, and I won't give away everything, but they do become pariahs, but they become pariahs together and they never lose that bond that started in 1821. And at the end of the chapter, uh, Hawthorne is dying. Pierce takes him up to a cabin in Northern New Hampshire. He tends to him as he is sleeping and he feels his pulse at one moment and realizes that Hawthorne is dead. He opens up his, the bag that he had carried with him and what does he find in there? But a picture of himself. Yeah, that it was just my heart so much. Yeah, it's just a testament to how these two men really forged this unified front, however unpopular it was, because of their shared love for each other and went to their graves, both kind of broken, unhappy men. But they did have each other. And, you know, I but think my best other. friend and, you know, um, she plays such an integral role in my life. And I, even when all the chips are down and fighting with my boyfriend, you know, what family is, what it is, I've got her and, and it's, yeah. it, it, and I, and I'm never alone. And, and I yes. think that's probably right. how they felt about one another. Um, so good. So Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, who you mentioned a minute ago, are the only pair of first friends in the book who would ultimately both become U.S. presidents. Um, Jefferson served first, of course, and Madison was in close proximity to uh, Jefferson's administration. So how do you think this insider knowledge shaped Madison's own administration? Well, I think you really would not have had a President Jefferson or a President President Madison without their 50-year friendship. Well, at the time when Madison became president, it was still only a 40-year president or 35-year president, 35-year friendship. But they were two, again, very dissimilar men, not unlike Pierce and Hawthorne or Nixon and Rebozo. And one of the things I found in my book is that opposites really did attract when it came to these first friendships mm -hmm. in at least four of the examples. Um, they needed each other because they complemented each other. Um, I think Jefferson needed somebody as exacting and pragmatic as Madison to take all of his lofty ideals, you know, that all men are created equal. Well, how do you, how do you actually implement that in the United States government? So he needed Madison's mind and his exactitude. And Madison needed somebody larger than him. He was a five foot four, frail, kind of shy guy. And he needed Jefferson to bring him out. And so the two of them just struck up this friendship in 1776, and it lasted 50 years to yeah. 1826, exactly 50 years. And I think as a result of that friendship, many of the structures of our government are really, the things we take for granted today were a direct result of that friendship, whether it was the Bill of Rights, which came about through really a back and forth correspondence between Jefferson and Madison after the Constitutional Conventional in, 18, in 1787. Um, it, it results in the two-party system when they go up into, um, they take a vacation in 1791 and decide we need to form another party to go against 
the um, Federalists. It results in the Louisiana Purchase. It results in the state university system that we enjoy today because they both founded the University of Virginia when they retired back to Virginia, when their political careers were over. So I think it is in many ways the most important friendship in American history. And I, and I, and I detail it through a lot of anecdotes, a lot of quoting from their letters, and just a lot of just you know things that we take for granted today that are a direct result of this friendship. Absolutely. So um, I want to jump way ahead to to Nixon and just interject this in here. I was shocked to see Nixon in the book because I see him as such a solitary figure, right? <laughs> like I see him as v- like the ultimate presidential loner in, in my mind. Um, but um, I want to focus next on Clinton's first friend, Vernon Jordan. Um, we mentioned him earlier. Clinton actually offered Vernon Jordan a position in his administration, but Vernon Jordan turned it down. Why did he do that? Because in a sense, as he said directly to Bill Clinton, I can be more valuable to you as your first friend. It was wow. it was a really shocking line, but one that resonated with Clinton. And he immediately dropped his push to have Vernon Jordan become the first uh, man of color to mm-hmm. become attorney general. There have been 77 white men who had occupied that job. And Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton were destined to break that, that uh, deplorable record. Mm-hmm. And they really wanted Vernon. But Vernon knew that he could be more valuable on the outside, unburdened by having to run an agency, unburdened by having you know specific tasks, but just being available. And whenever Clinton had a problem, the mantra was call Vernon and Vernon would come for whatever it was, whether it was a major personnel decision and he was involved in every single one from the choice of vice president to the choice of every cabinet secretary to the choice of chiefs of staff to the choice of General, I mean, everything everything that was done in the Clinton White House, certainly on personnel, was done with Vernon's uh, input, also on many policy decisions. And then as I write about at the end, something as personal as whether Hillary Clinton would stay in the marriage after he admitted to his affair with Monica Lewinsky mm-hmm. in 1998. It was only Vernon whom Bill trusted and Hillary's, Hillary also trusted and whose counsel she most valued did Vernon gets sent into her office in the White House in 1998 to talk her out of leaving Bill, and it obviously worked. Um, I mean, each of these friends enabled their presidential counterpart to become better presidents. So what, is, in your estimate, is the power of a good friendship, especially to leaders, and how does it differ from say a solid marriage, because we've, we've read ad nauseum, right, about first ladies, and that's obviously an incredibly close relationship to the president as well, a, an incredibly close personal relationship. But in, in some ways, these, these first friends were, in, in a lot of cases, even closer than the wives sure, of, of yes. these men. So, you know, this, I love this book because it, I've seen the power of good friendship in my own life many times, um, but this book really speaks to that. So what is the power of a good friendship in the life of, of a leader of the free world? Well, I think just to your point, it's no different than the role that a first friendship plays in your life or play, plays in my life. I mean, that's why I thought it was so ripe for a book is because if we can feel that importance every day in our lives. And I certainly felt its absence during the pandemic when you couldn't be around a lot of your friends. And I think a lot of us were reminded again when 
you know, we were able to reunite with our closest friends, just how powerful it can be, both as a respite, as a comfort, as a source of joy, as a source of solace when things are down. And so now imagine applying it to the most powerful person on the planet and the consequences that can flow from that. And that's what I really set out to do. And I think, um, you know, what you see is that when, when presidents have broken marriages, and there were a number of broken marriages in my book, it's the first friend who steps in to play the, you know, in a sense, that role. I mean, Bibi Robozo, to your point, was far closer to Richard Nixon than Pat was. And Pat basically acknowledged that. And Bibi's wife said straight out, I know where I rank in Bibi's life. I'm third behind Richard Nixon and his cat. Um, <laughs> so so Bibi Robozo was, was in a sense his his, his wife, his playmate, his rock on tour. He was the person who broke those brooding silences that Nixon would descend into because he really wasn't constitutionally able to be convivial and to be friendly with people. His best friend really was his yellow legal pad. But Nixon had the self-awareness to realize that he needed a companion to keep him from descending into the real depths of his dark mind. And so he had this guy, Bibi Rebozo, in the same way that I think Roosevelt had Daisy, because otherwise he would be left entirely alone, as he feared when he said that line to her. And so, you know, I think that we just see all the same dynamics in our own life, but played out under a searing national spotlight at times with with huge consequences if it goes right, you know, huge benefits if it goes right, and huge downsides when it goes wrong, as we saw with Rebozo and Watergate. Yeah, no kidding, right? And so um, for our last question, I, I'm going to expound on something that you just said. Since you've literally written the book on it, what is it like when your best friend is the leader of the free world? What opportunities and challenges does that bring? Well, I think it brings a lot. And I think it takes a, a genuine first friend to not indulge in all that, right? Um because you can basically dine out on it, you can bank off of it, you can trade on it, but the friendships that really worked, let's take Vernon, for example, he never asked or wanted anything from Clinton except for him to attend one golf tournament for a friend Even of his. He turned down a job, and not just a job, but a history-making job. From Correct, him. correct. But, right, so you saw, the, you saw somebody who knew the, what the proper role of a first friend was, which is to stay out of the limelight as much as you can, to provide that solace when the cameras are off, to provide the unvarnished truth when the president needs it and can't get it from somebody who serves at his or her pleasure and his job's not dependent on it. Um, but you can also see it go awry to some extent with Colonel House. We didn't talk about Woodrow Wilson. Mm-hmm. But Woodrow Wilson, you know, needed a friend at the same time that Colonel House was looking for the, quote, man and the opportunity to play on a large stage. And he was able to play Woodrow Wilson so brilliantly to accumulate power that perhaps may have been too much for his, his capacities and for his intellect and for his um, skills. And so he plays this dominant role in foreign policy, yet having no foreign policy experience just by nature of his friendship. And historians are gonna debate that forever, whether that was a friendship that went awry or actually served the ultimate goals of the president. And I kind of raised that question throughout that that chapter of my book. But I think think when it's done right, 
the first friendship is a hugely important unsung role that hopefully not I have now brought to light uh, for other scholars to dig even deeper in understanding. And you absolutely have, and I can't believe this book has not been written yet, but I'm so, so glad that it's written now. Gary Ginsburg, First Friends, so good. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you very much. I loved this book. It is certainly one of the best I've read this year. Thank you, Gary. I have two picks to share today, one that came out last Tuesday and one that comes out this Tuesday. First of all, Vanderbilt by Anderson Cooper, in which Anderson takes a closer look at his mother's side of the family, the Vanderbilts, and Feeding the Soul by everyone's favorite TikTok follow, Tabitha Brown. In addition to heartfelt advice, this book is also chock full of some of Tabitha's favorite recipes. It is an all-around feel-good book, perfect for fall. Let me know what you're reading, my friends. Let me know what you're loving at hello. I'd rather be reading at gmail.com and follow, rate, and review our show. It means so much to me. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back next week with Women's Health Editor-in-Chief Liz Baker-Plosser to talk about how to supercharge your morning routine. Talk soon. <laughs>